Chapter 2, Jesus and the God of the Jews. I begin with a quotation. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. So said Jesus. The sharp-eyed guardians of fundamental Judaism were highly agitated by the growing competition and threat presented to the religious community by the troublesome Galilean Jesus. His ever-increasing following, attracted by his miracles, a quick intellect and candid outspoken observations exposing the hypocrisy of religious leadership, had created a climate of fear and antagonism among the establishment. From the beginning of recorded history, fear of religious competition has normally produced a thinly veiled state of belligerency on the part of official custodians of the faith. In that atmosphere, there seems little room for calm, open discussion of differences. It's appropriate to ask ourselves how we view any threat, imagined or real, to our own cherished convictions. The ideal response to challenge is a humble, inquiring attitude, eager to consider the merits or faults of whatever is put before us for examination. Unfortunately, traditional religious systems often meet any threat to the status quo with hostility and intransigence. They have dealt harshly with the non-conformist. In the case of Jesus, an intolerant clergy exposed their fears by conspiring to end the threat presented by the upstart teacher's influence over the minds of the truth-seeking members of his audience. The Gospel of Mark records the story of an ongoing theological battle in which representatives of two competing religious factions cooperated by sending, quote, the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. That's Mark 12, verse 13. Their initial flattery aimed at catching Jesus in their web. Quote, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. That's Mark 12, verse 14. This opening gambit was followed by questions designed to discredit Jesus in the eyes of his audience. His perceptive answers to these difficult questions, however, gained him the admiration of at least one of the more open-minded scribes. The scribe or biblical scholar decided to pose his own question. His approach was straightforward devoid of trickery or sham. Paraphrased in modern language, it would read like this, quote, what is the core, the central idea of what you believe and teach? What is the single most important tenet of your theology? Mark reports the question as follows, what commandment is the first and greatest commandment? Or, as other translators catch the flavour of the inquiry, what commandment is the foremost of all? Mark 12, 
verse 28. Jesus reply bypassed the Ten Commandments and quoted directly from a later divine statement, the so-called Shema. Quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Mark 12, verse 29 and 30. Students of the Bible should consider whether they have grasped the implications of Jesus' basic Christian response. He evidently treats the Old Testament words of Moses as a repository of divine truth. His definition of God relies for its authority on what both Jesus and his audience knew to be a primary revelation. Jesus simply restated with complete clarity the fundamental tenet of the Jewish religious system, confirming beyond all argument that the true God is one Lord, and thus one person. The conversation which followed reveals the critical nature of the question. Few exchanges could be more enlightening as we hear Jesus himself laying the groundwork of all true faith and understanding. Here were two religious Jews in conversation about the question most crucial to spiritual life. An incorrect answer would have destroyed the credibility of Jesus with the Jewish community. The answer Jesus gave, however, immediately struck a responsive chord with the thoroughly monotheistic scribe. His enthusiasm for the historic creed of Israel is shown by his warm reaction. Quote, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. Mark 12, verse 32. In the mind of this or any other Orthodox Jew, Jesus' reference could only have been to the one-person God of the Old Testament. The celebrated Shema, here O Israel, declared that the Lord, our God, is one Lord. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. God is one, Jesus affirmed, and he is one Lord. Mark 12, verse 29. This simplest and clearest of all creeds permeates the Old Testament. I quote, For who is God besides the Lord? There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. 2 Samuel 22, verse 32, and 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. Could there have been lurking in the consciousness of Jesus the idea that he himself was another co-equal person in the Godhead, and therefore also fully God? It is beyond our imagination that any such notion could possibly be detected here or in anything else reported about Jesus by Mark. There was no disagreement whatever between the Orthodox Jewish theologian and Jesus, the pioneer of the Christian faith. God is one and only one. He is one Lord, 
This is Christ's central statement about the nature of the deity. Coming from Christ himself, it must also automatically stand as the central Christian creed. Jesus' closing comment confirms the understanding he held in common with the scribe. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. That's Mark 12, verse 34. From this remark, we would deduce that without this intelligent belief in the one God of the Jews, one would be far from the kingdom of God. Jesus' open declaration about the foundation of true religion should invite us to compare our own thinking with his on this most basic of all issues. It is important to note that this conversation took place at a late date in Jesus' ministry. If he were to introduce a shattering, radical change in Judaism's understanding about God, this would have been an obvious opportunity. Some modern theologians have attempted to account for the absence from Jesus' teaching of any new statement about the nature of God. One Trinitarian commentator, Lorraine Bertner, remarked that a doctrine of the Trinity, which to us is so difficult, should even in the hands of a people who had become fiercely monotheistic take its place silently and imperceptibly among accepted Christian truths without struggle and without controversy is certainly one of the most remarkable phenomena in the history of human thought. At the time of the New Testament books, the Trinity was already common property. That's from Burton's book, Studies in Theology, written in 1957. This is a striking, if very problematic, observation. First, there is the frank acknowledgement that the Jewish people, and this would include the original 12 disciples, who were all Jews, were, quote, fiercely monotheistic. As for the statements that the Trinitarian idea, quote, took its place silently and imperceptibly among Christian truths, and, quote, at the time of the New Testament books, the Trinity was already common property. Where is the evidence for this in view of the plain teaching of Jesus recorded by Mark? Jesus evidently knows nothing at all of any Trinity. He introduces no new idea of God. He agrees with the Old Testament, the Jewish scribe, and millions of Jews ever since that God is one person. What does this imply about traditional Christianity, which has so long proclaimed a definition of the Godhead different from the one on which Jesus insisted? Burton's assertion seems to overlook the fact that Mark's gospel represents the Christian faith as the church understood it when he wrote perhaps as late as 80 A.D. Burtner attributes to the first century church a doctrine of God which did not become fully formulated 
as part of the church's official creed until the 4th century, and even then under great protest. His conclusion that Trinitarianism was already at home in the circle of Jesus' disciples does not allow for the extreme sensitivity of the Jewish majority which constituted the membership of the primitive church to whom the idea of a triune God would have been alien, not to say blasphemous. The earliest recorded history of the church, the book of Acts, reports a whole conference held to decide such questions as Gentile circumcision, eating food containing blood, and the eating of meat from strangled animals. If these physical matters were considered worthy of formal discussion, how much more would a conference be necessary to discuss the explosive change from belief in the single-person God to that of a triune God? Among those fiercely monotheistic Jews, leaders of the early Christian community. What seems even more extraordinary in view of all Jesus' controversy with his chief critics is this. Never was there the slightest trace of any argument concerning the Trinity. This is not to ignore the controversy that came about as a result of Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, but that claim should not be confused with the much later assertion by the Church that he was, quote, God the Son. It remains a fact that the doctrine of the Trinity was never defended in the whole of the New Testament. This could simply be because it was unheard of. The Messiah is seen in the New Testament documents as the unique legal representative of God never as the second member of the Trinity. Burton's observation seems also to ignore the second and third century debates that ensued over the nature of God and Christ and the violent controversy at the time of the Council of Nicaea itself. As Christians were forced to accept belief in a pre-existent second person of the Godhead identified with Jesus. The Encyclopedia Americana, speaking of the conflict between the believers in the one-person God and those in the two- and three-person God, makes this important comment. Unitarianism as a theological movement began much earlier in history. Indeed, it antedated Trinitarianism by many decades. Christianity derived from Judaism, and Judaism was strictly Unitarian. The road which led from Jerusalem to the Council of Nicaea was scarcely a straight one. Fourth century Trinitarianism did not reflect accurately early Christian teaching regarding the nature of God. It was, on the contrary, a deviation from this teaching. It therefore developed against constant Unitarian, or at least anti-Trinitarian, opposition. That's from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. 
A statement by the Encyclopedia Britannica shows how wide of the mark is the suggestion that Trinitarianism was the settled creed of the earliest believers. I quote, the Trinitarians and the Unitarians continued to confront each other. The latter, at the beginning of the third century, as to say the Unitarians, still forming the large majority. In view of this documented evidence, it is not reasonable to claim that the doctrine of the Trinity took its place silently and imperceptibly among accepted Christian truths without a struggle and without a controversy, as was stated in Burtner's Studies in Theology. Burtner's assessment seems not to accord with the development of the doctrine over three centuries. There are other equally unambiguous statements confirming Jesus' belief in the God of Judaism. There's no hint of the introduction of a second person into the Godhead in the farewell prayer Jesus offered at the conclusion of his ministry. Shortly before his death, he prayed to his father on behalf of the disciples, whom he left behind to carry on the work he had begun. Summarizing the true faith, Jesus declared, and I quote, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's from John 17, verse 3. We note the remarkable comment of a celebrated church father. It was so difficult for Augustine to harmonize this original Christian creed with the Trinitarian dogma known to him in the 5th century that this immensely influential church leader actually restructured Jesus' words to accommodate both Father and Son in the Godhead. Augustine, in his homilies on John, boldly asserts that John 17.3 means, quote, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent as the only true God. I compare with this the remarks of H.A.W. Meyer in his commentary on John, written in 1884. Despite his own insistence on the deity of Jesus, Meyer admits that it was, quote, a perversion of the passage and running counter to the strict monotheism of John when Augustine, Ambrose, Hilary, Beda, Thomas, Aretius, and several others explained John 17, 3 as if the language were, quote, that they may know you and Jesus Christ as the only true God. Maya goes on, only one, the Father, can absolutely be termed the only true God. Compare with that, the one who is over all God of Romans 9 verse 5. Not at the same time Christ, 
who is not even in 1 John 5.20, which speaks of the true God, since his divine entity stands in relation of genetic subsistence to the Father, John 1.18, although he, Jesus, in unity with the Father, works as God's commissioner, John 10, verse 30, and is his representative, John 14, verses 9 and 10. It is hard to see how a Unitarian could possibly disagree with this fine statement from Meyer's commentary. This daring alteration of the Holy Scripture seriously distorts the words given to us by Jesus. Jesus defines his own position as the Messiah, distinct from the Godhead, which consists of the Father alone. The wise believer will distance himself from such violence to the Bible. Such forcing of the text merely exposes Augustine's desperation to find his creed in the scriptures. The original statement of Jesus needs little clarification. It is straightforward and clear. Jesus is a person separate and distinct from his Father, who is the only true God. Jesus has not been incorporated into the Godhead. The importance of Jesus' own creed cannot be overemphasized. The word, quote, only in the Greek language is monos, a term which has several equivalents in English. Its meaning is only or alone or solitary. The word true in the Greek is alithinos, meaning true in the sense of genuine or real. Putting the two Greek words monos and alithinos together, we see that Jesus describes his father as the only real or genuine God. Consider further Jesus' use of the word only. There's no doubt about the meaning of the word or the accuracy of its translation in John 17.3. Only is a word which limits and excludes. Whatever is described as only is in a class of its own, completely unique. All other things are excluded. If something is, quote, the only, automatically there can be nothing beside it. To see its usage in another text of the Bible, we note Paul's words to the Philippian church. Quote, no church shared with me in the giving and receiving, but you only. That's Philippians 4, verse 15. All other churches, of course, were excluded from Paul's reference. In another passage, speaking of the second coming, Jesus said, and I quote, of that day and hour, no one knows, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
That's Matthew 24, verse 36, and Mark 13, verse 32. Only the Father knew. No one else had this knowledge. We do not require an army of expert theologians or linguists to help us understand these easy statements. We've all been used to similar language involving only since we learned to speak. We all know what only means. Jesus described the Father as the only true God. No one disagrees that the Father is the true God, but note carefully, not only is the Father, quote, the true God, he is the only true God. We would be suspicious of anyone who claims he has, quote, only one wife if his household consisted of three separate women, each of whom he claimed was his one wife. As, quote, the only true God, or as we might equally well say, the only one who is truly God, the Father of Jesus holds a unique and unrivaled position. Another statement of Jesus recorded by John provides the strongest evidence of his continuing belief in the unipersonal God of the Jews. To the Pharisees, Jesus said, and I quote, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? That's in John 5, verse 44. I note that standard commentaries recognize that Jesus subscribed unreservedly to his Jewish heritage. For example, G.R. Beasley Murray says, quote, The only God of John 5.44 reflects the Jewish confession of faith rooted in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. That's from the Word Biblical Commentary on John, written in 1987. The New Revised Standard Version translates Jesus' words as the one who alone is God. A more transparently simple Unitarian statement would be hard to imagine. Quote, the one who alone is God recalls a number of monotheistic statements found in the documents of Jesus' heritage. It was the God of Israel who, quote, alone knows the hearts of men, the only one who knows the hearts of men. That's from 1 Kings 8, verse 39. Hezekiah had prayed to God with these words, O Lord, the God of Israel, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are God alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made heaven and earth. That's 2 Kings 19, verse 15. The psalmist had appealed to, quote, you alone, whose name is Yahweh, the Most High over all the earth. That's Psalm 83, verse 18. And another quotation, you, the great and only God, Psalm 85, verse 10. 
Jesus echoed these brilliant testimonies to Israel's unique privilege as guardians of monotheism. It was his father to whom the words only God and, quote, the one who alone is God were applied. Jesus makes this clear in the statement immediately following his reference to, quote, the one who alone is God in John 5:44. The Pharisees were not to think that Jesus would accuse them before the Father, John 5, verse 45. Moses' own words condemned them for their failure to see in Jesus the promised Messiah. On the other hand, Jesus always sought honor from, quote, the one who sent him, John 7, verse 18. Indeed, the Messiah was the one on whom, quote, the Father, namely God, has set his seal, John 6, verse 27. John portrays Jesus as a loyal Jew, faithful to the strict monotheism of his people and able to speak in harmony with them of, quote, the one who alone is God, or the only true God, and the God who had placed his seal of approval on his unique son. If the father of Jesus is, quote, the only one who is God, it is obvious that no one else belongs in that class. John's Jesus subscribes unequivocally to Israel's unitary monotheism. I note the comment of Walter Bauer in his Greek lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, who renders, quote, the only master of Jude 4 as the only one who is master. Jesus' reference to the only God in John 5.44 likewise designates the Father as, quote, the only one who is God. It is obvious that no one else belongs in that class. John's Jesus subscribes unequivocally to Israel's unitary monotheism. Jesus as Son of God. Despite Jesus' definitive creedal statements, which show him to be a true son of Israel, some present-day theologians are determined to justify the much later creed formulated in the 4th and 5th centuries. They maintain that Jesus, after all, did claim to be God because he did not deny that he was the Son of God. The repeated equation of Son of God with God in Trinitarian writings needs to be examined. Class Aronia is typical of a contemporary school of thought which asserts that the term Son of God leads naturally to the developed orthodox dogma that Jesus is God the Son. What does it mean, however, in the Bible to be Son of God? Runya examines the title Son of God in his book on Christology and states categorically that for theologians to take the term Son of God 
in its Old Testament meaning, quote, runs entirely contrary to what the Gospels tell us. That's from Rooney's book, The Present Day Christological Debate. Rooney maintains that the title Son of God, as used in the New Testament, is a clear indication that Jesus was pre-existent deity. No evidence is presented to show that the New Testament abandons its own roots in the Old Testament and ascribes to the title Son of God, a meaning never hinted at in the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament meaning of Son of God is devastating to the Trinitarian cause. Son of God was used in various ways to describe the nation of Israel, its king, and in the plural, even angels. In none of these instances does the title Son of God imply deity in a Trinitarian sense. A much more sensitive treatment of this question appears in an article by another biblical scholar, James R. Brady, who says, when the scriptures talk of Jesus as the Messiah, probably the most significant title they use is Son of God. In passages such as Matthew 16, verse 16, and Matthew 26, verse 63, it is clear that these two titles, Messiah and Son of God, stand in apposition. That's to say, the one title defines the other. The title Son of God undoubtedly stems from Old Testament texts such as 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 and Psalm 2 verse 7 in its association with the Davidic king. That's from an article entitled Do Miracles Authenticate the Messiah? in the Evangelical Review of Theology of 1989. Runia offers Mark 2, verse 7, and John 5, 18, as proof that Jesus claims to forgive sins and that God was his own Father must mean that he thought of himself as God. When Jesus said he was, quote, the Son of God, we are asked to believe that he was claiming to be God, rather than siding with the hostile Pharisees in their hasty criticism of Jesus' claims, it would be wise to consider Jesus' own response to the charge of blasphemy. It is crucially important not to lose sight of the Old Testament usage of the term, quote, Son of God. It would be fatal to lift this title out of its biblical context and give it a meaning not found in Scripture. Jesus habitually appealed to the Old Testament to support his teaching. This technique, on another occasion, as we shall see, demolished the arguments of the Jewish religious leaders when they falsely accused him of usurping the prerogatives of God. Jesus complained that they had misunderstood their own sacred writings. Let us first examine both texts advanced by Runia. According to Mark, Jesus said to the paralytic, quote, My son, 
your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes said to themselves, quote, This fellow blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 2, verses 5 and 7. Jesus' claim to be able to forgive sins seemed to place him on a par with God. By way of clarification and to silence criticism, which Jesus attributed to malicious intent, he said to them, quote, But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, quote, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. That's in Mark 2, verse 10 and 11. The authority to forgive sins had been bestowed on Jesus as God's representative. This did not make him God, but a human being vested with extraordinary powers as God's legal agent. The point was not lost on the crowds. They did not believe that Jesus had claimed to be God, but that God had given exceptional authority to a man. Matthew reports that, quote, when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. That's Matthew 9, verse 8. Nothing in the account suggests that the crowds understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. There's no indication that the monotheism of the Old Testament was in any way disturbed. Indeed, the subject of Old Testament monotheism was not at issue. Jesus' opponents took offense at his claim to be the uniquely authorized agent of God. His is a functional equality with God, which has nothing to do with a claim to be a co-equal, co-eternal member of the Godhead. Jesus was careful to point out that the Son can do nothing of himself. John 5, verse 19. On a later occasion, he invested the apostles with the right to forgive sins, a responsibility which did not include them in the Godhead. John 20, verse 23. We are very much heartened by the statement of a distinguished professor of systematic theology at Fuller Seminary, and general editor of the prestigious New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, in an illuminating discussion of issues relating to the Trinity, he says, quote, the crux of the matter is how we understand the term Son of God. The title Son of God is not in itself a designation of personal deity, or an expression of metaphysical distinctions within the Godhead. Indeed, to be a son of God, one has to be a being who is not God. It is a designation for a creature indicating a special relationship with God. In particular, it denotes God's representative, God's vice-regent. It is a designation of kingship, identifying the king as God's son. And a quotation from Dr. Colin Brown 
in the article Trinity and Incarnation in Search of Contemporary Orthodoxy from the Theological Journal Ex Auditu of 1991. Could it be that today's Trinitarians inadvertently and in sincerity desiring to exalt Jesus fall into the trap of ascribing to the Messiah a position as God which he never claimed for himself? A claim to be deity in the Trinitarian sense would actually be blasphemous by Jesus' own standards, since he repeatedly affirmed that his Father was the only true God. Runya insists that Jesus did claim he was God and was understood to have done so by some of the Jewish leaders in John 5 verse 18. But he has read a much later Trinitarian controversy back into these first century accounts to the confusion of the whole issue. In the fourth gospel, Jesus is an uncompromising advocate of the unipersonal monotheism of his Jewish heritage. As for example, in John 17, 3, John 5, verse 44, and compare with that Mark 12, verses 28 to 30. Jesus did indeed claim an equality of some sort with God in John 5, 18 but it is not the equality expressed by Trinitarianism. Jesus functioned on behalf of the one God as his representative. In that sense, he may be said to be, quote, equal with God. It is an abuse of these terms to pretend that Jesus had any knowledge of a Godhead of three persons. As Son of God, Jesus recognized that he possessed no inherent power apart from the Father. His was a derived authority. He always sought the will of him who had commissioned him, meaning that he was totally dependent on the one God. His exchange with the Pharisees ended with Jesus affirming belief in the one who alone is God. John 5 verse 44. He upholds the monotheism of his Jewish heritage. A subsequent charge of blasphemy by the Pharisees gave Jesus the opportunity to show his opponents how poorly they understood their own scriptures. The episode is recorded in John 10 verses 32 to 36. On this occasion Jesus asked the question, I quote, for which good work are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Greek is ambiguous here and could also be rendered a God. Jesus dealt with the accusation by citing the Old Testament, showing that the Hebrew Scriptures were still the supreme authority able to clarify his messianic claim. I quote, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, do you say of him, Jesus, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming, 
Because I said, I'm the son of God. Jesus seized the opportunity to define once again his position in relation to God. Quoting from Psalm 82 verse 6, he pointed out that the word God could be legitimately used of human beings who enjoyed special positions as divinely commissioned agents. The word God in the case of the judges of Israel certainly did not mean God the Almighty. No one would claim deity in that sense for these human leaders of Israel. The, quote, gods described in Psalm 82 were probably administrators authorized to act for God. Jesus based his argument for a correct understanding of Son of God on this psalm, where the word gods, with lowercase g, are defined as sons of God. Quote, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. That's Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. It would be unreasonable to maintain that Jesus changed this special Old Testament meaning of the word God, with lowercase g, equivalent to the phrase Son of God, or Sons of the Most High, when he expressly appealed to Psalm 82 to clarify his own right to the title, quote, Son of God. Encountering the charge of blasphemy, Jesus laid claim to a unique position as divine agent. He is the supreme example of a human ruler invested with divine powers. He went on record to declare his true status. Quote, I said, I am the Son of God. John 10, verse 36. But this provides no basis at all for the later Trinitarian assertion that, quote, Son of God is equivalent to, quote, God the Son. Thus, Jesus' defense of his own status explicitly contains the claim not to be Almighty God. Trinitarians frequently pass over John 10, verses 34 to 36, in silence. Old Testament expectation about the Messiah. Jesus was thoroughly schooled in the Hebrew Scriptures and could have made no claims about himself which contradicted the divine records to which he constantly appealed. A critically important prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, applied to Jesus by Peter and Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts 3.22 and Acts 7, verse 37, describes the expected greater Moses. And the important point is this, that the prophet would be, as Moses said, quote, a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your brothers. Moses and his brothers were evidently fully human, all members of the tribes of Israel. No stronger indication could be given that the one who was to fulfill the prophecy would be equally human and mortal. Moses would have been shocked to learn that the prophet, quote, like me, like Moses, 
already pre-existed as God and did not really originate in the human family. Moreover, God consented to Israel's request that God's agent, and not God himself, would address them. See Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 20, where the promised prophet, the Messiah, is specifically said not to be God. To read John's Gospel as if Jesus claimed to be God would therefore be in direct conflict with this important Christological text in Deuteronomy, as well as with Jesus' own declarations about who he was. Moreover, the apostles claim to have found, quote, the one of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. That's in John 1, verse 45. That predicted Messiah was not God, but God's ultimate human spokesman. To claim, therefore, that John intended to present Jesus as God would throw his own testimony into hopeless contradiction. Had a knowledge of a deity of two or three persons ever filtered down through the centuries, it entirely escaped the notice of the Jewish people. We cite again the words of the contemporary Orthodox Jewish theologian Pinchas Lapid. He says this, The confession that Jesus acknowledged as the most important of all commandments, and which is spoken by every child of Israel as a final word in the hour of death, was this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. What the Shema Israel has meant for the inner life and survival of Judaism can only with difficulty be understood from without. As orthodox, liberal, or progressive as one might be in one's religiosity, the oneness of God raises faith to a central height before which all other questions shrink to secondary ones. Whatever might separate the Jew on the fringe from the Jew at the center, the oneness of the common God makes secure the oneness of religious consciousness. That's from Pinchas Lapid's book, Jewish Monotheism and Christian Trinitarian Doctrine. Psalm 110, verse 1. Though the Jews could find nothing of an already existing, much less eternal, Son of God in the Old Testament, this has not prevented large numbers of contemporary students of the Bible from confidently proving the pre-existence of Jesus and thus at least a duality in God from Psalm 110, verse 1, which reads as follows, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Both the Pharisees and Jesus recognized that the second Lord, with lowercase l, of this verse, described the promised Messiah. 
Jesus advanced this text as a divine oracle demonstrating his view of the Messiah as both the son of David and David's Lord, lowercase l. As we read in Mark 12, verses 35 to 37. What then does the inspired Christological statement mean when it calls the Messiah Lord, with lowercase l? It has been argued by some that this verse should be rendered, God said to my God. They insist that David knew of a duality in the Godhead and under inspiration declared the eternal sonship and deity of the one who is to become the man Messiah, Jesus. Such a theory involves a complete misuse of the Hebrew language, which can easily be cleared up. The two words for Lord, in Psalm 110, verse 1, in the phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, are significantly different. The first Lord is Yahweh. It is quite true that Old Testament texts containing this word are sometimes in the New Testament transferred to Jesus when he functions as an agent for Yahweh, just as the angel of the Lord who exercises the authority of Yahweh is sometimes equated with Yahweh. As you find in Judges chapter 13, verses 3, 6, 9, 13, 15, 16, 17, 18, 20, and 21, compared with verse 22. But in Psalm 110, verse 1, there is no question that the first Lord mentioned, Yahweh, refers to God the Father, the one God of Israel, as it does on some 6,700 occasions. The second word for Lord, with lowercase l, written as my Lord, is Adoni, as to say the word Adon with a personal suffix E, meaning my. It's amazing that a number of commentaries wrongly assert that the second Lord, with lowercase l, is Adonai, which it is not. See, for example, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, edited by Walford and Suck, representing Dallas Theological Seminary Faculty written in 1987. That commentary states mistakenly that my Lord, with lowercase l, in Psalm 110.1, quote, translates the Hebrew Adonai, used only of God. Unfortunately, this comment suggests that the Messiah is God himself. In fact, the Hebrew word for my Lord is not Adonai, but Adonai which is never used of God, but often of the King of Israel and other human superiors. This surprising error of fact is symptomatic of the widespread confusion of God with the Messiah. First Samuel 24 verse 6 is typical of the Hebrew manner of distinguishing my Lord the King, the word there is Adonai, from the Lord God. No one reading Psalm 110 verse 1 could imagine that the Messiah was the Lord God. The Messiah is the Lord's anointed. See, for example, Luke's carefully worded titles. 
the Lord Christ, in Luke 2.11, is the my Lord of Psalm 110, verse 1. There are thus two lords, the one Lord God and the one Lord Messiah, Jesus. That is exactly Paul's creed in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 to 6. Robert Sumner, in his book, Jesus Christ is God, 1983, bases his major argument for the Trinity on Psalm 110, verse 1. I quote, Jesus' reference was to the oft-quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, readily acknowledged by the Jews of his day to be both Davidic and Messianic where King David called the Christ my Lord, using one of the names of deity, Adonai. He then goes on to find the complete trinity in Jehovah, Adonai in spirit. But accurate reporting of the language facts would make that conclusion impossible. The same error about the word Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1 appears frequently in evangelical literature. See, for example, Herbert Lockyer in his book All the Divine Names and Titles in the Bible, written in 1975. Quote, here, Jehovah speaks to Adonai, words that are properly applied to Christ. The Lockman Foundation, New American Standard Version, marginal note on Acts 2.36, likewise reports the Hebrew word as Adonai but they happily agreed to correct this mistake in future printings. If David had expected the Messiah to be God, the word used would not have been Adonai, but Adonai, a term exclusively used for the one God. The reader should note carefully that this distinction is not clearly described in Strong's Concordance, Hebrew and Chaldee Dictionary, word numbers 113, 136. Psalm 110.1 therefore provides a major key to understanding who Jesus is. The Hebrew Bible carefully distinguishes the divine title Adonai, meaning the Supreme Lord, from Adoni, the form of address appropriate to human and angelic superiors. Adoni, meaning my Lord with lowercase l, my master, on no occasion refers to the deity. Adonai, on the other hand, is the special form of Adon, meaning Lord, reserved for address to the one God only. The difference here is one which depends on the Hebrew vowel points. It is clear that the distinction between Adonai and Adoni has been faithfully preserved since ancient times. The translators of the Septuagint in the 3rd century BC attest to a careful distinction between the form of Adon, used for divine and human references, by translating Adoni as Tokiriomu, to my Lord, in Psalm 110.1. The New Testament validates this translation. In Psalm 110, verse 5, the title Adonai appears and here Yahweh supports the Messiah by standing at his right hand. Psalm 109, verse 31, and Psalm 16, verse 8, 
and the Septuagint renders Adonai as always Kyrios. The Lord God of verse 5 is thus sharply distinguished from David's human Lord, the Messiah, who is Adonai in verse 1. A reader of the Hebrew Bible is schooled to recognize the vital distinction between God and man. There's an enormous difference between Adonai, my master, or my lord, lowercase l, and Adonai, the supreme God. No less than 195 times in the Hebrew canon, Adonai marks the person addressed as the recipient of honor, but never as the supreme God. This important fact tells us that the Hebrew scriptures expected the Messiah to be not God, but the human descendant of David, whom David properly recognized would also be his Lord, with lowercase l. For an analysis of the occurrences of Adonai, see Herbert Bateman's article, Psalm 110.1, and the New Testament in the theological journal Bibliotheca Sacra of 1992. The author, as a Trinitarian, argues that the psalm cannot apply primarily to Jesus because Adonai describes a human Messiah. Bateman's Trinitarianism causes him to dismiss the obvious direct messianic reference of this psalm. Jesus had no doubt that he was that Lord with lowercase l in Matthew 22 verses 41 to 45. And Jesus certainly knew that he was not the one God. In a book devoted entirely to a study of Psalm 110.1 in early Christianity, David Hay notes that there are no less than 33 quotations and allusions to Psalm 110 scattered throughout the New Testament. Many of these references, he says, are set in passages of high theological consequence. That's from the article Glory at the Right Hand, Psalm 110 in Early Christianity. Psalm 110.1 is surrounded with what Hay calls a special aura of prophetic revelation. It is clear from Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees, as well as from the Jewish Targum, reflecting an ancient tradition, that Psalm 110 verse 1 designated the Messiah in his relation to the one God. The former was a Davidic messianic figure, the prince of the world to come. New Testament allusions to Psalm 110 verse 1 suggest that this verse formed part of the earliest Christian creeds and even hymns. Evidently, some august person, according to the divine oracle, was to enjoy a unique position at the right hand of the deity. But who was this? The second member of a triune Godhead? Such an idea is absolutely impossible in a biblical context. What the psalm does provide is an invaluable key to the nature and identity of the Messiah as the appointed agent of God. 
in a crucial apostolic sermon laying the foundation of the faith, Peter declared that at his ascension, Jesus, quote, a man whom they had crucified, was now confirmed in his royal status as Messiah and Lord. That's found in Acts 2, verses 22, 23, and 36. It is here that we encounter the supreme truth of Christology. Jesus, however, is not the Lord God, Yahweh, but the Lord Messiah, based, as Peter asserts, on the oracle of Psalm 110, verse 1. It is on this bedrock definition of Jesus' status that all New Testament Christology is built. Jesus is the Lord, with lowercase l, whom David addressed prophetically as my Lord, or Adoni. Jesus is indeed Kyrios, Lord, with lowercase l, but certainly not the Lord God. That title, Adoni, invariably distinguishes a human superior from the one God in the Old Testament, all 195 times. It is a distinction which is clear-cut and consistent. Adonai, by contrast, marks the one and only supreme God of the Bible 449 times. It is unusual for scholarly writing actually to misstate the facts about a word appearing in the Hebrew or Greek text. Astonishingly, however, a remarkable error crept into statements on high authority regarding the identity of the Messiah in this crucial Christological passage in Psalm 110, verse 1. That verse, often cited by the New Testament, legitimates the title Lord, with lowercase l, for Jesus. Yet it has been the subject of extraordinary attack from the theological pen. Neither the Hebrew nor the Greek of the Septuagint and the New Testament will permit that Lord, with lowercase l, to be deity. Both Testaments unite, therefore, in their opposition to the idea of the Trinity. It is to Jesus as Lord, with lowercase l, that the Church directs her worship, service, and even petition. I note that it is granted that in the New Testament, prayer is generally offered to the Father through the Son, but prayer to Jesus is also countenanced, as we read in John 14, verse 14. Jesus, on the basis of Psalm 110, 1, is David's Lord, or my Lord, lowercase l, and thus our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of Jesus remains uniquely the one Lord God, who is also, quote, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Ephesians 1, verse 17. God and Lord, with lowercase l, therefore point to a crucial difference and distinction of rank. The Messiah is not, quote, co-equal God. Notice now the evidence of a widespread confusion in the treatment of this psalm. The status of Jesus as the human Adonis has proved to be an embarrassment 
to later so-called orthodoxy. A Roman Catholic writer, in an effort to support his traditional doctrine of the Eternal Son, states, and I quote, In Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit thou at my right hand. This passage is cited, says this writer, by Christ to prove that he is Adonai, seated at the right hand of Yahweh. Matthew 22, verse 44. But Adonai, my master, as a proper name, is used exclusively of the deity, either alone or in such a phrase as Yahweh Adonai. It is clear then that in this lyric, Yahweh addresses the Christ as a different person and yet identical in Godhead. That quotation is from Walter Drum, S.J., in his article on Christology in the Encyclopedia Americana of 1949. But this information given by Walter Drum is entirely incorrect. The second Lord of the Hebrew text is specifically not Adonai, but Adoni. The latter is never a divine title. The former always designates the deity. The whole Trinitarian argument from this psalm fails because the facts of the language are wrongly reported. In an article appearing in the Evangelical Quarterly, William Childs Robinson states with confidence that, quote, it has long been held and taught in the Southern Presbyterian Church that Christ is Jehovah, that is, that he who was worshipped as Jehovah by the Old Testament saints did, without ceasing to be God, become man, quote, for us men and for our salvation. But the Scottish professor of systematic theology in Union Seminary, New York, has recently challenged this statement, writing in the Presbyterian of the South as follows, quote, The orthodox view is surely not that Christ is Jehovah. Such a phrase is new to me. End of quotation from Williams Charles Robinson in the article, Jesus Christ is Jehovah in the Evangelical Quarterly of 1933. The author then contends that the proposition Jesus is Yahweh is an age-long axiom of the Church and the acme of orthodoxy. The misgivings of the Union Seminary professor point to a deep-seated uneasiness about the equation of the Messiah with God. Dr. Robinson nevertheless argues that because Jesus is called Kyrios, or Lord, he must be God. He refers to Luke 2.11, which introduces the Saviour as the Lord Messiah, and concludes that this means Christ Yahweh, or Christ Jehovah. He then turns to Acts 2, verses 34 to 36, where Peter quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, to establish Jesus' status as Lord. But he misreads the Hebrew text and claims that Jesus is sitting as the Lord Adonai at the right hand of Jehovah. This lofty celestial messiahship, he says, pyramiding 
the eschatological son of man, who is Adonai at the right hand of Jehovah. And this is supposed to prove that Jesus is Jehovah. But the facts, again, are completely against him. The Messiah is not here called Adonai, as he asserts, but Adoni. The Hebrew Bible does not confuse God with a human being, as Trinitarianism does. The famous Smith's Bible Dictionary ignored the human title given to the Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 1, and then appealed to this text as evidence for a Trinitarian Jesus. I quote, Accordingly, we find that after the ascension, the apostles labored to bring the Jews to acknowledge that Jesus was not only the Christ, but also a divine person, even the Lord Jehovah. Thus, for example, St. Peter, after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost by Christ, says, quote, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, Kirion, or Jehovah, and Christ. Acts 2, verse 36. A subsequent editor, however, was uneasy with this tour de force, which presented Peter as an adherent to the later church councils. He issued a corrective in an editorial footnote. In describing to St. Peter the remarkable proposition that God has made Jesus Jehovah, the writer of this article appears to have overlooked the fact that Kirion, Lord, refers to okiriomu, my Lord, with lowercase l in verse 34, quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1, where the Hebrew correspondent is not Jehovah, but Adon, the common word for Lord. The same misinformation about the crucial title Lord for the Messiah reappears even in the prestigious international critical commentary on the Gospel of Luke. I quote, In the Hebrew, we have two different words for Lord. Jehovah says to Adonai. Psalm 110 was always believed to be messianic and to have been written by David. That's a quotation from Alfred Plummer writing in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the International Critical Commentary of 1913. There are two different words, certainly, as reported by Dr. Plummer. God was talking to himself rather than his human agent, the Messiah. Once again, Trinitarian dogma was forced back into Scripture at the cost of changing the words of the text. Numerous examples of the same era of information can be found in older commentaries and surprisingly also in the Schofield Bible Notes on Psalm 110, verse 1. I quote, The importance of the 110th Psalm is attested by the remarkable prominence given to it in the New Testament. It affirms the deity of Jesus, thus answering those who deny the full divine meaning of his New Testament title of Lord. But how does it affirm the deity of Jesus when the Hebrew title applied to him designates 
in every one of its 195 occurrences, human and occasionally angelic superiors. The phrase, to my Lord, with lowercase l, used in the oracle addressed to the Messiah in Psalm 110.1, appears 24 times. On these occasions, men or women address men, especially the king. On every occasion when my Lord, with lowercase l, Adoni, and Yahweh appear in the same sentence as in Psalm 110.1, my Lord, with lowercase l, invariably contrasts the one God with a human person. Readers of the Hebrew Bible are constantly exposed to the difference between God and his agents. O Lord, Yahweh, the God of my master, Adoni Abraham, Genesis 24, verse 12. The Lord, Yahweh, has greatly blessed my master, Adoni, in Genesis 24, 27. The Lord, or Yahweh, has given my Lord, Adoni, the king, vengeance on Saul, 2 Samuel 4, verse 8. The title, My Lord the King, occurs frequently as an address to Israel's sovereign. Readers of the English Bible are accustomed to recognizing Lord, with all capital letters, as the translation of the original Yahweh. They may also know that the form Lord, with a capital L, little o-r-d, indicates the original divine title Adonai. But in Psalm 110, 1, the distinction is unfortunately lost in many translations. And only in this single case, when the Messiah appears in many translations as Lord with a capital L, they may also know that the form Lord with a capital L indicates the original divine title Adonai. In Psalm 110, verse 1, however, the distinction is unfortunately lost and only in this single case and the messiah appears in many translations as lord with a capital l where the word is not adonai the divine title but adoni my lord lowercase l the human king the false impression is thus created that the messiah is the one divine lord since in all of its 449 occurrences, Adonai appears in English as Lord with initial capital. The Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges points out that the revised version, quote, has rightly dropped the capital letter on the second Lord in Psalm 110.1 as being of the nature of an interpretation. My Lord, Adonai, is the title of respect and reverence used in the Old Testament in addressing or speaking of a person of rank and dignity, especially a king. Genesis 23, verse 6, 1 Samuel 22, verse 12, and subsequently. That's a quotation from A.F. Kirkpatrick in the Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges on Psalms written in 1901. The consistent distinction between human and divine references 
indicated by a vital difference in the pointing of the Hebrew word Lord, has been ignored or misrepresented in translation, in Bible notes and commentary, under the pressure of Trinitarian dogma. The correction of capital Lord to lowercase L-O-R-D in the revised version of Psalm 110.1 was preserved in the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version. It is properly rendered also in the Jewish Publication Society translation in Moffat and in the Roman Catholic New American Bible. I note that the Companion Bible of E.W. Bullinger mistakenly informs us in its notes on Psalm 110.1 that the second Lord is Adonai. That is simply not correct. Other modern translations continue to give the impression that the Hebrew Bible's oracle about the Christ, so precious to apostolic Christianity, places Jesus in the category of deity. The long-standing cherished view that Jesus is the Lord God should give way to the biblical testimony that he is in fact the Lord Messiah, as in Luke 2.11. David's human superior, the unique human agent of the one God of Israel. The application of Old Testament Yahweh text to Jesus means that Jesus acts on behalf of the one God, his God and Father. It does not mean that he is Yahweh. When, however, Jesus is called Lord, lowercase l, or the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Messiah, the Lord Christ, and our Lord, this is positively not an indication that he is Yahweh. These titles inform us that he is the Lord Messiah as specified by the foundational Christological text in Psalm 110, verse 1. Jesus' appointed apostle followed his master's argument from Psalm 110, verse 1, when he described the status of the Messiah in relation to God. With the Hebrew Bible in mind, Paul carefully distinguishes in a critical creedal statement between the one God, the Father, and the one Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has not split the Shema of Israel between two persons. This would be to abandon his precious Jewish creed. Paul, in fact, makes a clear Unitarian declaration. Quote, there is no God but one. There is one God, the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 6. He then claims for Jesus a lordly status based on the central Christological affirmation by divine oracle that he is the promised my Lord, Adoni, the King Messiah, the Lord's anointed. Psalm 110, verse 1, Luke 2, verse 11. Another quotation. There is one Lord Jesus, Messiah, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. This is his full official title. Peter had likewise proclaimed in Acts 2, verses 34 to 36, 
with apostolic authority derived from the Messiah, that Jesus was the appointed Lord Christ, in accordance with Psalm 110.1, as distinct from and as the servant of the Lord God. Neither the Jews nor Jesus misunderstood their own language on this critical matter of defining God and his Son. They never thought that Psalm 110.1 had introduced distinctions in the Godhead or that God was speaking to himself. It is only by reading a Trinitarian or Binitarian point of view into this text that the claim that the Messiah was to be fully God can be upheld. The Lord, lowercase l, expected by King David, was to be both his descendant or son, as well as his superior and master, but emphatically not Yahweh himself. The point may be confirmed by Howard Marshall in his commentary on Acts in the Tyndale New Testament Commentaries. Speaking of the quotation of Psalm 110.1 by Peter in Acts 2 verse 34, Howard Marshall says, quote, The attribute of lordship is given to Jesus. He is not equated with Yahweh. Psalm 110.1 stands as a barrier against any expansion of the Godhead into two or three persons. The evidence of the Hebrew Scriptures is contradicted by the suggestion that the New Testament sees the Son of God as a member of the Godhead. Traditional orthodoxy has substituted its own definition of Lord as it applies to Jesus and advanced the extraordinary and very un-Hebrew idea that God is more than a single person. In opposition to the definitive oracular utterance of Psalm 110 verse 1. In an article with the title God or God with lowercase, Arianism, Ancient and Modern, found in the Evangelical Quarterly of 1996, Donald MacLeod ends with a cry for Orthodox Trinitarianism by insisting, we cannot call a creature, however glorious, Lord. He appears to have overlooked the fact that David, in his inspired prophetic utterance about the Messiah, a text precious to Jesus and used by him in controversy to silence opposition, did in fact designate the Messiah as his exalted human Lord, lowercase l, Adoni. From ancient times until now, this Christological pearl of great price has been thrown away. In Bart Ehrman's fascinating study, the Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, published in 1993, Ehrman records extensive evidence of deliberate alteration of the New Testament manuscripts, some such corruptions found their way into our translations, by which Jesus is called God instead of Christ. In the quotation of Psalm 110 verse 1, in Luke 20 verse 42, the text of the Persian harmony of the Gospels has been changed so that it no longer reads 
the Lord said to my Lord, with lowercase l, but God said to my God. The absence of any such division of the Godhead in the true text of the Bible has not prevented the Orthodox from forcing on the inspired records, whether by actually tampering with the documents or in commentary, a startling substitution of a title of deity for the Messiah. New Testament Christians would certainly agree that Jesus functioned in the role of Yahweh as his agent, that he was actually Yahweh, was out of the question. Their confessions on this subject are clear. How then did Jesus' closest followers define the status of their master? Jesus was deeply interested in that question. He deliberately inquired of them, but who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 15. Their answer is crucial to our understanding of the Christian faith.